welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. We have a jam-packed episode. We'll be returning to the subject of Werner Herzog on this episode. As you all know, a subject of great mutual interest for both Luke and I. Before getting into it, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit more about the situation in the Middle East, which I know has been occupying uh, both of our thoughts, the thoughts of a lot of our listeners. I'd just like to address some of what we've been feeling over the last week since we last spoke to you, really just to uh, hear myself talk and work through a lot of difficult and very strange feelings. You know, Luke, next year is actually the 20th anniversary of a film very near and dear to our podcast, Fahrenheit 9-11. Right. Uh, Maybe you've heard of it. And I was remembering how when that movie came out, it was quite novel, some of the footage it presented of the Iraq war, the ground invasion itself. There was so much atrocity footage, footage of dead bodies, footage of Iraqis mourning their losses. I remember when I saw that in theaters at the time, being particularly disturbed of the footage of the U.S. military just like going house to house in Baghdad and arresting people. Or if you remember, there's that scene of the tanks rolling through Baghdad and the the guys are talking in this very matter-of-fact way about the death metal that they're listening to or whatever. Just viscerally disturbing stuff. Yeah, I remember all that well. The other the other one that st- uh, has always stuck with me is uh, the woman whose house has been destroyed. Oh, God. I, yeah, no, I, I still think about it. I mean, those are the scenes from that movie that I that I really remember and yeah. think about. Not, not so much the other stuff. Well, I think I know where you're going with this will. Well, it's an interesting lesson these past few weeks about what has changed and what has remained the same. In the immediate aftermath of October 7th, you know, a lot of us compared it to the moment after 9-11 and the lead up to the Iraq war. Uh, As an article in N Plus One magazine put it, have we learned nothing? And obviously some of us have learned nothing. The mainstream media has learned nothing. I'm sure you saw there was a clip of Hillary Clinton going around. I I mercifully did not see whatever you're talking about. Watch it, but you saw every couple of weeks. You know, there's there's some fresh new clip of Hillary Clinton with a microphone in her hand, sitting in a chair on a panel somewhere, saying something awful. In this case, saying about how you know we can't we can't have a ceasefire because we've we've got to we got to stop out Hamas. Right, right. Incidentally, do you remember when that audio leaked of her boasting that she rigged the Palestinian election? Yeah, I mean somebody with a, a really good track record in the Middle East. So there's a lot that hasn't changed. On the other hand, you know, you look at your social media feeds and that stuff that we saw in Fahrenheit 9-11 at the time, which was so novel because you were simply not seeing footage like that. It was a concentrated effort to keep footage like that off the news because certain people had learned their lessons from Vietnam. They realized that, you know, all this footage of your sons and daughters coming home in a body bag didn't look very good. It was tightly controlled what sorts of images made it on the news. That control is no longer possible in this moment, even with those periodic shutdowns of telecommunications and the internet in Gaza. There's been a steady stream of horrific atrocity footage that really has had a huge influence on the hearts and minds of the world. Further, one of the uh, heartening things about social media, and another thing that we've seen only in a limited and slanted way in the mainstream media, are the massive protests that have been happening all over the world. On Sunday this week, I was at one in Toronto that began at the U.S. consulate and ended at Young and Dundas Square. Tens of thousands of people marching in the streets. I'm sure, Luke, you saw the footage of uh, Westminster in London. Yeah, an even bigger protest this past weekend than the previous one, a a record-setting crowd. You know, in countries like France and Germany, where protests like this had, if not been outlawed, had been severely legally limited, you know, people have been showing up anyway in droves. 
And then meanwhile, we keep seeing this wave of oppression, this wave of corporate and donor censorship of speech. Art Forum magazine was in the news this week. You know, Art Forum, probably the greatest art magazine in the United States, unceremoniously fired their editor of the past five years because he printed a letter signed by many in the art community calling for ceasefire and end to occupation. We've seen, you know, suppression on campuses, people in institutions who can't bring themselves to say the word Palestine. On a personal level, you know, seeing the Al Jazeera bureau chief in Gaza mourning over the bodies of his dead family killed in what was almost certainly a targeted strike by the IDF. And then to see, I don't know, to name one institution, the Columbia Journalism School, my alma mater, you know, where is their statement in solidarity of him and all the other journalists killed? But then, you know, you also see all the editors at Art Forum and many of the contributors resign in solidarity with that fired editor. Well, and of course, notwithstanding everything you've said, which, you know, I agree there has been, you know, it's it's significantly different today than, you know, it was uh, with events 20 years ago, uh, you know, largely because of social media and smartphones and that kind of thing in terms of the kinds of images that now come out of a conflict like this. Everyone can see it with their eyes, what's happening. And this may have something to do with the, uh, you know, really grotesque, you know, rhetorical strategy embraced by Biden over the past week, which was to start doubting the official casualty figures coming from the Gazan Ministry of Health. And then, the, you know, the awful chaser in Biden's statement or in uh, one of the White House press briefings where they said, well, of course, civilians are killed in conflict. That's just the nature of it. I mean, the one two punch of that. And then when the ground operations began a few days ago and the you know official White House or State Department statement was, uh, you know, there are no re- we, we, we don't we don't really consider there's no red lines here for us. I mean, absolutely horrifying. Yeah. And I mean, the the weight of that grossly outweighs any momentary and cautious feeling of hope that I or, or, or relief that I feel when I see those masses of protesters. And, you know, I, I constantly have that frustrating feeling over the past few weeks of knowing like the stark limits of what any of us can do as just individual citizens or hell, even groups of citizens. And, you know, when I'm trying to get my mind off just the the awful like moral catastrophe of what's happening the enormous weight of the suffering in those images we're seeing, I start uh, reorienting my brain into the politics part and trying to understand what the political calculus is here. I hate to always bring things back to things that some dumb guy on Twitter said, uh, but there was- But you're going to. But I'm going to. I'm going to because it's it's fun, you know? (laughs) Uh, There was some idiot who had a thread that was getting tossed around on the weekend where- You're going to have to narrow it down a little bit. (laughs) uh, Oh, I will. It was some long thread about how, uh, you know, Biden really knows what he's doing here. And one of the tweets was, uh, Biden is not stupid. And surely his response to the conflict is motivated in part by an awareness that there is no meaningful coalition partner he is losing by taking the stance that he's taking. And, you know, first of all, the just the disgust, the, well, ad- the, the, the parameters of this as an argument is, is insane. Like, so defending Biden's position by being like, well, Biden in like a cynical, like, uh, you know, electoral calculus sort of way, he doesn't lose anything by doing this. So what's the it's problem? Not, yeah, it's not even making the case for this invasion is morally no, no. necessary. But so it's like, and why is Biden the main character or the protagonist anyway? Also, it's also it's wrong on its own terms. Well, yeah, <laughs> just the, the politics brain of looking at what's happening, looking at these 
images and saying, well, well, first, well, first of all, Biden is really smart. Uh, he really knows what he's doing. You've, you've got to vote for him. But then even if you even if you don't vote for him, like you claim, uh, he doesn't even need your stupid support. Right, right. He's got he's got this all tied up. He's got <laughs> you are so meaningless that it doesn't even matter. Um, and I feel like at every stage over the last few weeks, the narrative of everything the West and Israel has done keeps being so multi-pronged. Either it's, what, there's no genocide, or it's, oh, what do you care about a genocide? They're all anti-LGBT over there. Or it's, um, listen, uh, it's really bad what's happening over there, but it would be so much worse under Trump, so you still got to support Biden. Or it's, ah, Biden doesn't need you anyway. I don't know. I keep trying to think what is the what is the grand uh, political strategy at work here, and I, I keep remembering a quote in the eternally relevant film Duck Soup, where Groucho says, "Folks, uh, Chico may look like an idiot, and he may talk like an idiot, um, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot." <laughs> Well, there's no easy way to transition out of the last subject, so we're not even going to try. Uh, we have a podcast to do here. And given everything, we thought we'd do an episode on a subject uh, that we both really like, a subject of great mutual interest, a subject that we've talked about uh, many times on the podcast. So thank you for your kind <laughs> indulgence. But listen, this is an inexhaustible subject. Werner Herzog is an inexhaustible subject. The questions he poses for the world, for film and documentary form, his philosophy, uh, his worldview, his whole je ne sais quoi, uh, eternally relevant questions there. And also, Luke Savage just spent the last week immersed in the work and words of Werner Herzog as he was writing a book review of his newly published autobiography, Every Man for Himself and God Against All, which I've also just read. So I think we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, talk about, you know, Luke's findings. And we'll talk about his 1979 film, Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht. So I guess, Will, to begin, I mean, since you've read the book as well, I am I am curious to ask, you know, what were your thoughts on it were? Because I did feel like, you know, and, and I uh, argued this in my piece, which should be coming out relatively soon. I do think the book irked certain reviewers because it's not written as kind of... A, a linear narrative. It's very sort of impressionistic. Uh, you could call it digressive, although I'm not exactly sure that's the right way of talking about it. I mean, apart from the fact that it sort of roughly or loosely begins in childhood, elsewhere it is sort of all over the map. Most of the chapters, and there's something, you know, there's more than 30 chapters, I think, are just built around an idea or an image or a place or something. And then all else, all narrative is epiphenomenal of that. So it does make for somewhat unusual reading. But I actually found by the end of it that it had an, on multiple levels given me a newfound insight into Herzog and into his artistic project, uh, because I think the book is written in the way that he devises his films as well. He is not somebody who uh, starts with a narrative and then sort of builds the images around it. Um, in fact, that kind of process is something he uh, regards with great skepticism and even cynicism. He doesn't re uh, seem to respect people who make films that way. That's not a method that he believes in. So, you know, he disdains certain uh, figures from the French New Wave who are these, you know, critics who began by thinking about film in an abstract way and then, you know, crafted a cinema, you know, on the basis of whatever abstract schema they'd constructed. He doesn't work that way. He works uh, from certain images that often 
at their point of origin don't really have any kind of narrative attached to them. You know, that's something that comes later. And in talking about uh, his own life and writing it up uh, in this memoir, he's kind of proceeded in the same fashion. Well, in terms of uh, his filmmaking and his philosophy behind it, there's no one way to be a great filmmaker. There's a oft-cited quote by Werner Herzog where he said, to me, something like Jean-Luc Godard is intellectual counterfeit money compared to a good kung fu film, which whenever I hear that quote, I roll my eyes a little bit. It's like, you haven't seen a kung fu film. Well, in the book, he does talk about, I guess it's not a kung fu film, but he talks about like, learning about cinema from watching like the Fu Manchu movies. There's something, <laughs> I think, just a little bit glib about it. I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, you couldn't get two more polar opposite great filmmakers than Werner Herzog. No. and Jean-Luc Godard, because for somebody like Godard, he's very interested in the cinematic apparatus, uh, the moral weight of everything in that apparatus, cinema itself and its relationship to history and art. Whereas Herzog, as he says in that book, you know, didn't see his first film until he was a teenager, is not at all a cinephile and seems to regard cinema as a vessel He's more interested in the content of the images than the way they're filmed. You know, a a Brian De Palma or a Dario Argento or someone is all about the composition and the editing. You know, there are filmmakers like that. Alfred Hitchcock is maybe like that. But with Herzog, he doesn't allow storyboards. You'll notice in his films, there's a lot more uh, handheld camera work. A lot of scenes in his fiction films that look like they're shot like documentaries are. He works with good cameramen, and I think he's not uninterested in how things are shot and framed. But that's not what's most important to him. And it seems that most of his influences are literary and artistic sources rather than film sources. He's only cited, you know, a handful of movies like Murnau's Nosferatu and Todd Browning's Freaks and maybe a few others as direct influences. Yeah, the first of those, which obviously is directly germane to uh, the film uh, that we're going to talk about. Uh, But no, you're right. Images are absolutely central uh, for Herzog. And something I was really struck by, uh, I mean, all the childhood stuff in Every Man for Himself and God Against All, I thought was incredibly important. Partly because of the way he describes childhood in this kind of almost you know mythic way, he renders uh, his childhood you know as a as an adult of about eighty as you know a child's eyes kind of see the world. So when he's talking about you know the time his mother rescued him from a witch or the time that he heard you know creakings in the house on the stairway and then he you know met God or whatever you know these are kind of ecstatic renderings that are not unlike the way that you might see the world as a child. But also even when he's describing prosaic images like I you know I made a note of this one passage I don't think. I had a chance to uh, mention it in my piece, but he's, he's talking about uh, one time where he was in the hospital and he has these very, very precise memories about very banal things. And I think this is a really interesting insight into how his mind works. He says, these are two things I remember from the hospital. I was given an orange. I had never seen such a thing before and a nurse had to show me how it was peeled. Then she left me. I didn't know what to do then, so I carefully segmented it, then stared at the segments. Finally, I started to peel the individual segments, the longish crescent forms now naked, I then pressed into my mouth. The taste was indescribably wonderful. The other thing I remember was that I spent several days playing with a loose thread that I had pulled from the seam of a blanket. I was mesmerized by the incredible possibilities of the thread. It was a revelation to me. My mother told me that for a whole week I had nothing but this thread, but my time with the thread was thrilling. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible given how long ago that was. I mean, just even the way it's described in such kind of like almost excessive detail uh, that he still has that emblazoned 
seasoned into his uh, memory. I'm not sure he's ever done anything with those two particular items, the thread and the orange, but it is an interesting insight into how his brain collects information and stores it. I mentioned this on the podcast a few months ago, but I think it bears repeating in this context. When I was in Berlin, I saw a documentary that I don't think has been released here yet called Werner Herzog Radical Dreamer, which is a sort of comprehensive 90-minute overview of his life and career where, you know, the, the filmmakers follow him as he revisits relevant sites from his life. We're seeing in Bavaria, where he spent much of his childhood, and there's a waterfall in the woods near the home. And uh, he talks about how much he loved that waterfall as a child. And he and the other kids wondered where the water came from. It was a great mystery. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm an adult now. I could climb and find out where it comes from, but I don't want to know. I'd rather it remain mysterious. And that instinct is central to him. He's endlessly curious. He's I think the only commercial filmmaker I know of who's shot on every continent. But his curiosity goes up to the point where things become demystified and then stops there. So in Encounters at the End of the World, his documentary about Antarctica, you know, that came out, what, a year or two after March of the Penguins, which was this really cloying, cuddly documentary, (laughs) you know, anthropomorphizing all those penguins on their year-long mating ritual or whatever. And this one, you know, almost like as a conscious rebuttal, has a penguin subplot. And, you know, famously, (laughs) yeah, you you see, you see the penguins like marching and then there's one penguin who goes insane and he just runs off into the distance, just waddling and waddling and waddling into oblivion. And the scientists tell him, oh, we have, they do that sometimes. We don't know why they just run until they stop. And I, I know that Herzog, if there is a scientific explanation for why the penguin is running, he doesn't want to know. The inexplicable nature of that aberration is fascinating to him. And he also doesn't want to, he doesn't want to see the corpse at the end. He wants to know that it just went into oblivion. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, our last Herzog episode was about, uh, you know, not that long ago, it was about his film Heart of Glass. I don't remember the episode number, but the episode itself was called The View from Dover Beach, if you want to look it up. That was taken from, uh, you know, the title of the poem by uh, by Matthew Arnold. But the plot of Heart of Glass uh, very much mirrors what you're saying, even though obviously Encounters at the End of the World is a, is a documentary. This is something that you find throughout Herzog, because in Heart of Glass, when this town in 18th century Bavaria loses its its master glassmaker and the local baron orders this frenzied search you know to find the glassmaker's formula to find you know whatever the technique is that's allowed him to make this kind of ruby glass that the baron is obsessed with and thinks the glass has magical powers the act of trying to uncover or unmask this secret you know to dig up the glassmaker's house all these insane things that the town tries to do in order to, uh, you know, find the secret of the ruby glass, it just brings about the town's destruction. That is an absolutely uh, central idea in Herzog. You know, he, he talks in the book about how much he detests uh, psychoanalysis, you know, which is this related to the exact same part of his outlook. I mean, he, he likens it to brightening every crevice of a house until the house becomes uninhabitable. Like he will pluck images from the depths of his psyche, but he is not only disinterested, but actively averse to probing their origins. And he thinks it's a deeply counterproductive thing to do. Like I say, there's no one way to be a great filmmaker. And obviously his method works for him. You can't argue with the results. 
Uh, but yeah, when he's talking about psychoanalysis, or there, there are a lot of things he expounds on that he doesn't understand. Well, he talks about reading Goethe in uh, in university and how like there's two major works by Goethe that have been completely ruined because of the you know scholasticism that the professors brought to them, kind of trying to taxonomize them, situate them you know within uh, you know different tendencies in German literature or whatever. And for him, that that ruins it. Like applying abstract schema to something, it suffocates the ecstaticism. Of it, if I can put it that way. And I mean, I simply don't agree with that a well, lot no, of the time. Well, no, but here's the thing. Intellectually, I don't agree with that in a, in a kind of broad intellectual sense. I Yeah, I obviously don't agree. And, you know, I did kind of allude to that in my uh, piece. But as you said, I mean, you can't actually object to it if you're just uh, talking about Werner Herzog's films and method because he's gotten absolutely tremendous results from it. So it is actually in his own sense of, you know, the ecstatic truth versus the empirical truth of things. He's obviously right about it in some really fundamental and important way. Yeah, I mean, again, you can't argue with the results, but it's like, I'll go to him if I want to see Fitzcarraldo, but I'm not going to go to him if I want advice for like, how to get over a trauma, you know? (laughs) And I mean, just personally, I mean, my patience for him runs out a little bit when he's sounding off on the cinema verite, which is a term that, you know, cinema verite for him is the exact opposite of what he thinks he's accomplishing with his ecstatic truth, with his proudly subjective, often very fanciful documentaries. And I mean, I just don't think he's seen or seriously thought about the movies that he's like expounding on. I mean, I don't even know if he really knows even the filmmakers he's talking about. He's heard a definition of cinema verite, but I mean, I don't know, I like Frederick Wiseman and Robert Drew too much to think that those cinema verite movies with their judicious juxtaposition of images, with their very conscious editing strategies, with their highly politically charged choice of subjects, are what he thinks they are. Again, yeah, none of that takes away from how good Little Dieter Needs to Fly is. It's just the stuff that I find exasperating when I'm, for example, reading interviews with him or reading his autobiography, which I hasten to add, I liked. Uh, <laughs> the autobiography was very fun. I mean, how can it not be? He's lived an extraordinary life. He has an interesting, very direct prose style. And, you know, uh, the, the way the book is structured as these sort of half linear and then half digressive little think pieces on relevant subjects spanning time and space. You know, you were talking about his prose style and something I uh, I took note of in taking notes on the book that I thought was very interesting is the way he uh, seems to approach screenplay writing like a literary form. Again, he writes them on the basis of ecstatic images and that's kind of how he begins them. He doesn't write them in a sort of uh, purely instrumental way. For example, the very first line from the, uh, the screenplay for Cobra Verde possibly the best of his films starring Klaus Kinski from the late 1980s. Big words. Yeah, well, you know, prove me wrong. The light garish, lethal, the sky without birds, the dogs vanquished by heat, demented with anger, metallic insects sting glowing stones. There's a little more in that in the same vein, but I won't read it. The point is just... That is not a traditional way to begin a screenplay at all. And again, it illustrates the fact that Herzog always proceeds from images more than anything else. He finds the plot after. I think the sequence for him is image and then, you know, mood. And then it's only at kind of the third stage that it reaches kind of the specificity of plot. But you were referring earlier to some of the reviews about this book. And I think in particular, you're thinking of the New York Times book review by Dwight Garner, which is pithy and funny, but also rather ungenerous. 
There's a paragraph here where he writes, he grew up in rural Bavaria and then in Munich. Before making his early films, he tells us, he worked as a minder of cows, a laborer, a spot welder, a larcenous parking warden, a rodeo clown, and a smuggler of stereos, and then guns into Mexico. Of what it's like to have been internationally famous for more than 50 years, and to have spent a great deal of time on dioceses at film festivals and in penthouse suites, there is vastly less documentation. The wise reader, still hunkered, will at this point reach for a helmet and check for his or her wallet. I, I hate this. I'm sorry. I, I could not get into this review at all. I think it fundamentally misunderstands what the book is doing. I think if you read this book or you watch Herzog Cinema and that's your reaction, there's something very fundamental that you're missing. I have such a strong aversion to that. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, and I'm interested in the fact that we reacted to it uh, quite differently. I mean, like I say, uh, I have mixed feelings because earlier he compares Herzog to Bob Dylan, I think in a way to criticize him, but I think the comparison is very apt. But if I have slightly more friendly skepticism of Herzog than I used to, I think it comes down to his 1999 film, My Best Fiend his documentary meditation on his collaboration with Klaus Kinski. And, uh, you know, that's a movie, you know, he goes through all five of the films that he made with Klaus Kinski, tells all sorts of uh, really funny stories about Kinski's antics, you know, the bad behavior on the set. And, uh, well, hey, you know, every now and then he was also kind of a sweetie. You know, here's an interview with Claudia Cardinale to tell you what a sweetie he could be every now and then. Uh, but, But folks... He was really badly behaved on sets, and uh, I had to harness the tornado. I had to wrangle the savage beast and channel him into the art. And I don't know, I look at that movie and I see it coming after the context of Fitzcarraldo, which so badly damaged his reputation in Germany, sort of the -the behind-the-scenes turmoil of that movie, coming after years of Herzog being painted in the press as a megalomaniac doing these ego trips in the jungle. You know, I look at a movie like that and it seems to me a little bit like an attempt at damage control and a score settling where the subject isn't even alive to offer a counterpoint. You know, it's him kind of saying, well, listen, I know what you heard about the set of Aguirre and Fitzcarraldo, but uh, folks... Uh, he was the crazy one. Now, yeah, mind you, he, well, it's he, so, he it's was so funny, the crazy one. It's so funny that you're saying this, Will, because as we all know, uh, subsequent events have definitely, <laughs> uh, you know, exonerated Klaus Kinski. Kla- Kla- Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski, a very good man. But no, but what I'm saying is, in Herzog, there is a myth-making, there is a brand-building. In the case of Klaus Kinski, there's a moment in the book where he says something like, Oh, Kinski wanted wanted you to think that he was this God-given talent. You know, the talent just emerged through him, and, and he had no idea how he got it. But actually, Kinski was extremely disciplined. When I lived with him in the same boarding house when I was a child, you would hear him do these, like, vocal exercises all day and night, and he would never admit to doing this, how hard he worked in his craft. Well, in Kinski's own autobiography, Kinski Uncut, Kinski mentions these vocal exercises that he would do. And, you know, you look at Kinski in these films, and nobody had more of a mastery on how to use their face on film. We, we remember how he would, you know, be this, like, furious screen presence. But really, like, so important in Kinski is the stillness, the way the eyes move, the way the lip trembles. And in talking about Kinski that way, I see a little bit of projection, because Herzog himself also has a tendency of wanting to seem like this kind of God-given force of nature, you know, particularly 
particularly the way that he sort of distances himself from the rest of cinema. Uh, I mean, Nosferatu, the movie we're going to talk about, is kind of one of the few examples of a time when he wanted to place himself in an actual continuum of cinema history. Like, for the most part, when he's been asked about, like, the new German cinema, that great flowering of, you know, Fassbender and Wim Wenders and other fine filmmakers in the 70s, he's often put a little bit of a distance between himself and that movement, seeing himself as, you know, operating at the same time, but not part of a movement. Myself, I think that's quite honest. And I think this is one of the most important things to understand about Herzog is that the kind of otherworldly quality that a lot of his films have is because he's developed an unusually a non-derivative kind of cinema that's less in conversation with the, the cinema around it. And as you said earlier in the discussion, you know, is I think more influenced by uh, literature and, and painting and even music than it is by other cinema. That's true. He is quite upfront about his influence in those realms. Right. And so I don't know, to me that I mean, it's intellectually honest for him to uh, portray his cinema this way, I mean, you know, as kind of non derivative, that does seem to be very much the case. Uh, yeah, similarly, I mean, going back to the review, I'm not sure everything you just said was meant to be a sort of defense of that review. But I uh, to be clear, no, because <laughs> I, I, ju- I just found I mean, there's that line earlier in the piece where uh, the writer is critiquing Herzog's conception of ecstatic truth and compares it to something, you know, you might hear from Kellyanne Conway or something rather cringe. And that's just yeah, I just I mean, you want to read a book like this and you want Herzog, what, how did he put it? There's very little on what it's like to be at the dais at film festivals and in I think, penthouse I think suites. Garner That's is, what you want to hear about? I think Garner is sort of making a maybe uncharitable and bad faith accusation with a tiny sliver of truth that Herzog wants to promote an image of himself as completely apart from all these uh, glamorous and wealthy systems that he benefits from or spends time in. Now, as I said earlier, I mean, there's there's a kind of conscious image maintenance side of Herzog that I run up against every now and then. But unlike Dwight Garner in the New York Times, I don't I don't think it's fundamentally dishonest to, you know, downplay certain people and spaces that have been in his life and emphasize other people and spaces that have been more important to him. Because I mean, look, I, I go to the dentist's office, it's not going to be a huge part of my autobiography, uh, him going to the Cannes Film Festival and going to pitch meetings at studios are certainly important on some level, but I don't think his downplaying of them in the book speaks to a fundamental dishonesty. I think it's quite the opposite. I think the book is a book about his point of view and the way he sees the world. And I think that is much, much better and more interesting. You know, like I didn't know what this book exactly was going to be when I started reading it. And, you know, this isn't a comment on Herzog, but could easily have just been a sort of run through of all the classic Herzog episodes we know about, you know, you know, it could have been, hey, remember the time, uh, you know, uh, he pointed a gun at Klaus Kinski on the set of Agira, or was it the other way around? As Kinski claimed, you know, hey, uh, remember all that stuff that happened during the making of Fitzcarraldo? Instead, you know, those things are kind of there, but they're all in the service of the book's uh, higher purpose, which is for Herzog to elucidate and probe and, and try to articulate the way he sees the world and, and how he tries to render that and express that through art. And I just find that vastly more interesting than a sort of linear run through of like mostly publicly available trivia oh, of Werner Herzog. Life, so I just I don't know. No, completely. Like it's a it's the book is valuable as a sort of manifesto for you know how he thinks and feels about things. Uh, if I can if I can sort of finish the Klaus Kinski point from earlier though, yeah. because to the extent that I have a friendly beef with Herzog, uh-huh. and I don't really, but to the extent that I do, <laughs> bit of a one sided beef. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Werner Herzog, I challenge you to a debate. Yeah, come on, Michael and us. But in my best fiend, the agenda of which seems so overwhelmingly to be about establishing you know who is the crazy one in this relationship. I mean, my reply to that movie would be, 
Okay, Klaus Kinski was a very dangerous man. He was a very violent man who caused harm to, you know, many of his co-workers. He was an uncontrollable force on set. But what I see in My Best Fiend is a sort of abdication of responsibility. It's like, okay, he's the crazy one, but you were the one who kept hiring him. On some level, you said whatever harm this man on the set causes is worth it. And it's the same thing. I mean, you know, in Fitzcarraldo, uh, on some level, he said, you know, whatever risks are associated with dragging that ship up the mountain are worth it. At his least ingratiating to me, he's kind of uh, not addressing that. I don't know. Again, I think that's absolutely central to Herzog's entire project beyond just Klaus Kinski. Think about how many Herzog films, documentaries and uh, works of fiction. Think about how many of Herzog's films, whether documentaries or dramas, center on people, uh, sometimes noble, sometimes wicked, sometimes morally ambiguous, who have some kind of chaotic impulse, some kind of chaotic heroism that, you know, like the director himself, places them in some kind of danger that most people would consider reckless. The documentary, which I actually watched for the first time this past week, uh, The Great Ecstasy of Woodcarver Steiner, which is about, you know, this legendary ski jumper. That's a good one people can watch on YouTube. It's only 45 minutes long or something. And honestly, that film is only incidentally about the actual sport of ski jumping. It's about how the act of ski jumping is this deeply kind of solitary thing and how Steiner's skill was so abundant. He was putting his life at risk every single time he did a ski jump. Or we could think of Timothy Treadwell from a uh, grizzly man, you know, who has a type of heroism about him that uh, Herzog clearly admires, even though there's also something like deeply tragic about it. And, you know, uh, Treadwell also has this overly romantic conception of nature that he sees as, you know, being superior and more harmonious, you know, to the world of people that has, you know, uh, shunned him or whatever. Herzog's kind of down on that. But there's something similar going on there. Or, you know, Fitzcarraldo and the character of, you know, the main character, Brian Sweeney Fitzgerald, and his desire to build an opera house in the middle of the Peruvian jungle, drag a ship over a mountain. Aguirre, who, you know, at the end of the film is just left to drift down the river on a raft, you know, surrounded by uh, little monkeys and more, literally more convinced than ever by the end of the film, in spite of everyone in the party being dead, in spite of the fact that he's just this like lonely guy who's about to starve to death in the middle of the jungle. He thinks like Eldorado's around the next bend in the river. So there is an overriding fascination in Herzog with uh, people who in some ways resemble like mythical versions of himself. And I think, you know, there's plenty more examples I can give, but I think in the examples I just did offer, you can actually see a spectrum of different kinds of characters, even though they all share this same basic trait. They're not always uh, heroic in a literal sense. They're not always laudable. And I think that shows a kind of introspective quality to him as well, because I think he does uh, understand how dangerous and in some cases reckless, you know, the way he's... uh, made certain films really is. Well, in the book, he recounts that he was going to make Fitzcarraldo with 20th Century Fox, maybe starring Jack Nicholson (laughs) originally. But uh, everyone said, well, why don't we film it at the Botanical Gardens? And he said, no, 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 we got to film it not just in South America, but in the most remote part of South, hundreds of miles from any town. And they said no. And, you know, he's right. The movie uh, would not be the movie without doing that. Um, And, you know, one of the best parts of My Best Fiend is uh, when you you see the footage of Jason Robards in the aborted first version of Fitzcarraldo, where he's up in the he's up with Mick Jagger in the bell tower. You know, we want the opera in Iquitos. <laughs> and then you see the Klaus Kinski version. 
And I think Roger Ebert had a funny line where it's like, you know, for the same reason that dragging an actual boat over the mountain is better than having a toy boat over a model hill, uh, having Klaus Kinski is better than Jason Robards. And, you know, is it worth having an incredibly dangerous and violent man on your set to accomplish that? Um, Well, you know, uh, let's let history be the judge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a nice cop-out answer from Will to his own question just there. We should talk about Nosferatu, our actual movie for this episode in a bit, but I do just have one final comment I want to offer on the book. Because towards the end of it, there's a whole chapter where Herzog is basically grappling with the fact that he's become a sort of a, I don't know, a meme. He's become a sort of minor fetish object in the English-speaking world, and I guess in perhaps other countries uh, besides his native Germany as well. I was, I suppose, impressed by how open he is about, you know, the fact that, like, he understands that audiences have this kind of fetishistic relationship to his Bavarian uh, intonation and, like, the way he speaks. But I actually found myself getting quite irritated on his behalf reading through that chapter and it made me recall well something you said to me a few years ago where you know you sent me I don't know some cutesy Herzog meme or something and you were like god I hate when people do this and I was kind of like, ah, that's just, that's Will being like, a, you know, Will's a film snob. That's just him. He doesn't like people having fun or something. You were 100% right about that. I found myself getting so annoyed. You know, you get you get to the end of this book where you've just, you've been on this, inc- there's just this epic journey. You've been on every continent. You know, you've plumbed the depths of this great artist's soul. And then, you know, you're reading about him going on the fucking Simpsons. Like, not the good Simpsons either, you know, like oh. season fucking 27 or something. And I don't know, uh, I did find myself getting uh, pretty annoyed about this. Like, because it does seem like some people have tried to re- reduce Herzog to like a meme. Like, oh, isn't it funny that he plays like, you know, oh, he's a villain in this B movie or he's on The Mandalorian or something. And it's like, OK, yeah, but then there's also all the great films. That well, he, made. <laughs> he mentions he mentions that what's good about it is obvious. But what's bad about it is that it can run the risk of distracting from his real work. And I mean, you see him in The Mandalorian. And what does The Mandalorian have to do with everything Herzog has stood for? <laughs> everything his art has been about. It has nothing to do with it. In fact, it's quite antithetical to most of what he stood for. I think he said he'd never seen a Star Wars film until recently. Right. There you go. Which good for him, I say. That's pretty hard to do. And it goes to show, I mean, you know, if you see Herzog in The Mandalorian, there might be one instinct of you to be like, wow, look, look at how he's changed the world. Look at how famous and how influential he's become that this new German cinema auteur from the 70s is on this big Disney thing. But what it really shows you is how the huge maw of corporate culture <laughs> could just swallow up, you know, could turn everything into an empty signifier. Right, the like, guy who made Fitzcarraldo can become just like a meme. Just swallow up the essence of... A, a, float, of, a floating signifier of amusingly brooding uh, Teutonic gravitas or whatever. Yeah. So annoying. And, and ultimately how that, how he's like, he's silly. Like all, <laughs> right, all right. the things he's saying are basically silly <laughs> because he's saying them in an accent. Right, right. Um, so whatever uh, misgivings or qualifiers I've given for him in this episode. Please understand that I at least pay him the respect of taking him seriously. funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so let's talk about Nosferatu. I had only seen this film once. Uh, I think there were really two principal reasons we decided to watch it. Well, that's if we're not counting the third reason, which was that I suggested Strozak and Will had watched it recently. Uh, But hey, Halloween. Happy Halloween. That's right. Halloween is, uh, you know, a primary reason, a reason number one. Number two is that I think that Nosferatu is, and you know, Will's already kind of alluded to this, Nosferatu is a bit of a standout film in Herzog's filmography, or at least there's certain ways in which I think it should be understood and identified as such. And I think one of the things, one of the main things at stake in talking about it is discerning whether in fact that's actually the case. And as I said, Will's kind of alluded to this already, but you know, Nosferatu very much is a a direct homage to the uh, 1921 film by the uh, great German silent filmmaker F.W. Vernau. Werner Herzog has described himself as, you know, growing up as part of an orphan generation. You know, whenever he talks about the epoch of barbarism, that's his uh, phrase, you know, referring to the Nazi period in Germany, he, he very much speaks about it as a period in which history itself was interrupted, or at least Germany's, you know, his own country's interaction with history it was severed. He talks about uh, his own parents who were early converts to uh, the Nazi party, you know, in the, I guess in the early 1930s, card-carrying members. And he talks about them and, you know, similar people in their generation breaking themselves off from, I think he says, the continuum of European history and instead, you know, immersing themselves in this, you know, anachronistic uh, nationalist romanticism or something. Well, I remember when I was in Berlin recently, pretty much every museum, but particularly the German Film Museum, has this shocking moment where, you know, in the German Film Museum, you're walking through these rooms and seeing all these artifacts from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, from Metropolis, from M, from all of these classics. And then all of a sudden it stops. There's this incredible flowering that stops. And, you know, there's a room or two of the commercial cinema that was made under the Nazis. And um, virtually none of it is known today. I mean, for obvious reasons. And also because it sucked. Because it's bad. And it, again, speaks to what I was saying earlier about how non-derivative much of his cinema is. And that's why this film Nosferatu is uh, potentially a standout. And I mean, I do think cards on the table. I do think it is a standout in some ways because it is an homage to Vernau's film. It has many images and many performances which seem to be taken straight out of the German silent tradition. Certain direct quotations from the original Vernau film as well. Yeah, so it's extremely rare. You know, it's, there's, it's quite novel for Werner Herzog to make a film like this at all or to want to make a film. I found a lecture he gave uh, in New York, I believe, in 1980, I think, and it was either before or after or, or both a screen reading of um, Heart of Glass, which we discussed some months ago on this show. And he talks about uh, Nosferatu being, a, you know, a bridge movie, like a, a film which actually was about reestablishing links with the past, which again is something that I don't think, you know, I'm unaware of him uh, ever saying anything uh, analogous to that about any of his other films. It's also, as he said in the behind the scenes documentary on the Blu-ray, his first genre film. Yes, And so unlike most of his films, is concerned with conforming to certain of the rules of the genre. Uh, And in fact, I think one of the things that's unique about it is it is not in any way a revisionist genre film. You know, this was one of three Dracula movies that came out in the year 1979. (laughs) One of them was Universal's Dracula with Frank Langella, a, a remake of the Bela Lugosi version. Which, by the way, Herzog claims he's never seen the Bela Lugosi version. So certain of the iconic foundations 
foundational texts of the genre. Right. You know, he, he knows the novel. He knows Nosferatu. And it, it's going right back to that. But anyway, there was Universal's big budget Dracula movie with Frank Langella that was a sort of modern, sexy spin on the vampire. And then there was a comedy called Love at First Bite with George Hamilton. I'm sure Herzog's seen that one. <laughs> right. But this movie goes back to this Dracula cowers when he sees a cross. You take the blessed communion wafer and you crumple it and you put it in a circle around the vampire and he can't cross it. You know, it conforms to all those like really old school rules of the genre. Uh, you know, that's why I uh, liked this film the first time I saw it. And I think it's one of the major reasons I enjoyed it uh, upon this viewing. This to me very much feels like the authentic Dracula adaptation, because it really is just like if somebody could have made Dracula as a film in the 19th century in a purely gothic way, it would be this film. I don't know if we need to run through the plot of this movie exactly. Uh, I assume most people are familiar with the contours of the Dracula story. I'll tell you a bit about the first time I saw this movie, though. This was the first Herzog movie I ever saw. I saw it when I was, I think, 12 years old. I rented it on DVD from Roger's video. If I'd have seen this when I was 12, it would have scared the bejesus out of me. Well, that's funny because um, I, it didn't scare me. And in fact, the first time I saw it, I was really quite angry at this movie because it was so slow. And, and the whole scene where Bruno Gans as Jonathan Harker is looking at the clouds go by or oh, just like which of course I love I'd never seen anything like that and that yeah. was such a challenge it's like I I cannot believe that this movie is doing that I was mad at it and then I remember reading the Roger Ebert review where he made the case for it and thinking oh that's interesting and then I rented it again a few months later and I, I felt like I got it a lot more and you know Herzog is a good director for a precocious adolescent or teenage cinephile <laughs> because his movies are different from normal movies in their pacing and their storytelling and their performances and their images and everything they're different from normal movies in a way that gets you thinking about how how and why movies work. But they're also like a lot of the appeal is right there. It's on the screen and uh, you don't even need to have a huge base of knowledge to appreciate them. I think they're kind of there for anybody whose heart is open to them. Well, I do think we should run through the plot just a little bit, uh, perhaps not in a granular fashion. Well, you see, there's this guy named Dracula, and he lives in a castle in Transylvania. This is true. Um, and he's thinking of making a big move. Uh, <laughs> thing, things, are, things are a bit boring over there. You'll notice he doesn't have any neighbors. So he gets in touch with his friend from the city, Renfield, uh, who runs a small real estate firm. And there's an ambitious young real estate agent there named Jonathan Hart. Parker, who's been entrusted with a big job, travel to Transylvania. It's a bit remote. Uh, you're going to have to go by horse. The horseman is going to have to take you to this place and then no further. And then you're going to have to go by foot. He's got a wife at home, Lucy. They're deeply in love. But, you know, she's wearing all white. And uh, you know what that signifies. Yes, they sleep in separate beds, which is really bizarre. The, the beginning of the film, after the opening shots, which incidentally are some like actual mummies that Herzog went and got like the sarcophaguses and opened them up and like stood them up. That opening shot, I mean, it's it's funny how things change for me as I get older, because when I saw that opening credit sequence with the mummies as a teenager, it, it looked probably cheap and had like, no impact on me Oh my me God, it's one of the most terrifying, like, you know, yeah. And it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, except as Herzog says in his 
commentary track to establish a climate for the film. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, various graveyards in uh, the Dark Souls series where I got killed by skeletons hundreds of times. Uh, But anyway, uh, after this kind of mood setting bit, the opening of the film is that Lucy has a nightmare and uh, Jonathan goes and comforts her. And yeah, it's very strange. They sleep on twin beds that are like next to each other with a dresser in between, which I guess, you know, your speculation about it, that, you know, it's not just incidental. It is supposed to have, you know, some kind of symbolic meaning. I'm sure you're right about that. The idea of the vampire as a sort of disruptive force of liberated sexuality, the Christopher Lee ones from the 1950s and 60s, the Hammer ones, that was always the subtext of those films. It's like buttoned up, repressed British society has this wave coming and it's coming for your daughters. That's in a lot of those films. And I mean, in this one, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the vampire is revealed to be desperate for love and by implication sex as well, or whatever the vampire version of sex is. He's defeated by her sacrificing, you know, her innocence for him. The way that Herzog frames the shot and the two actors, Kinski and Ajani, play it. Unmistakable sexual undertones to it. Although, you know, watching this film again, I I mean, I really am struck by uh, how it is simultaneously a pure gothic genre film and also is just so purely Herzogian. And here I just want to introduce uh, another detail from early in the film when uh, Jonathan Harker is on his journey to the castle. There's a brief scene where he uh, kind of stops in an inn or he's in a village that's, you know, nearby the pass that leads to the castle. And all the villagers are telling him, you know, there's there's something dark uh, that lives there. Like no one goes there. There's a guy who has like a local coach service and he refuses to take him there. And even though the guy is standing there with his coach and all his horses and Harker tries to buy one, the guy just says, oh, sir, I, I don't I don't own any horses. And so he has to go on foot. So I think this is a very significant detail in the film. Harker's dismissal of, of these villagers and, you know, what they say is just, you know, pure superstition. It mirrors the way Van Helsing is portrayed in the film as well. Van Helsing is kind of a minor character in this movie. You know, he's not the vampire slayer. He's this slightly flustered local doctor, this man of science. And for much of the second half of Nosferatu, Lucy is really the main character. Uh, Because Jonathan Harker has been bitten by Count Dracula. He doesn't recognize his wife. You know, he's increasingly fading. And what we see in the second half of the film are various, uh, you know, figures in local officialdom basically telling Lucy, you know, don't worry about this. You're just being superstitious. There must be some kind of scientific explanation. It just takes time. We'll figure it out. You know, you just need rest. You're just a young woman and you can't get over the fact that your husband is sick. And meanwhile, much more than we're now, Herzog emphasizes the dissolution of society and officialdom. Yes. And this exactly mirrors uh, the plot of Heart of Glass, or at least it calls to it. Because again, the attempts to probe into this mystery, I mean, Dracula, we should say, basically, comes back to the town. He's bought a house in the town where the film begins. It's right around the corner from Jonathan and Lucy's. He comes over on a ship in, you know, a series of coffins filled with dirt. He brings this kind of infestation of rats to this coastal city. When you see an unmanned vessel... Do not open the big coffin of rats. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they, did, they didn't learn about uh, the 14th century in their uh, European history class in this coastal German town. 
But yeah, the ship arrives. You know, I love the way that's done where you see the captain writing the log and it's just he's just talking about various shipmates just disappearing without a trace. And, you know, he ends up tying himself to the wheel of the ship to keep it on course. And then, of course, he's dead by the time it actually arrives. So, yeah, exactly like in Heart of Glass, everyone in local officialdom's attempt to probe the secret, to figure out what's going wrong, to try to unmask, you know, through empirical methods, the, the source of this pestilence, this plague, this malaise, which, you know, as it proceeds, there's a you know wonderful scene, maybe, maybe my favorite scene in the movie, where Lucy, who's the only person who seems to have retained her sanity, is running through the town square. And it's just kind of devolving into this sort of drunken, you know, folk festival. And it's at once kind of morbid and, and joyous at the same time. People just seem to have completely lost their minds. There's a, a funereal atmosphere, like there's various kind of affectations around that seem to be associated. Like they were going to hold a, a funeral to various people who've turned up dead or something, but nobody can remember that that's why they're there. And so Lucy, in I think what is in many ways the key scene of the film, has this confrontation with Van Helsing, which sets up the key tension in the film, uh, the tension between uh, faith or, or superstition, as many of the characters uh, would see it, that Lucy holds, and you know, reason and empiricism on the other hand. The film portrays as quite inadequate in dealing with Nosferatu, who, who represents death certainly, but also just uh, you know, the unknowable. Van Helsing at the end of the film uh, gets arrested because when Jonathan Harker wakes up after Lucy's sacrifice, you know, and he's he's basically just Count Dracula now. The last shot in the film is him just riding off. You know, he says, get my horse. And the implication is he's going to Transylvania to take up a residence in the castle. But Van Helsing, uh, you know, he successfully blames Van Helsing for Lucy's murder. And so in a sense, he and Van Helsing have the same downfall. You know, Van Helsing's refusal to grapple uh, with, with the reality of this force that's, uh, you know, beyond science, beyond his empirical methods, and also Jonathan Harker's refusal to heed the wisdom of these villagers who tell him not to go near the castle. This film is in many ways a genre film, but watching it again, it's clear that it is also resolutely Herzogian. Well, folks, now it's time for the plug segment. I bet you thought you were going to avoid it, but you will never avoid it. I have hypothetical shoes to buy for my hypothetical kids. Uh, Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. You're probably wondering what some of the Patreon exclusive episodes are. We covered the most recent latest hot off the presses new film by alexandra pelosi called the insurrectionist next door what's this one luke it's, it's alexandra pelosi daughter of nancy pelosi's second film about january 6th in less than 12 months quite an achievement i mean obscene <laughs> in the current moment <laughs> doing it, a january 6th movie of everything going on also there's an episode a special episode covering the crisis in gaza where luke talks to the great political commentator Edinger Mentum about the life and legacy of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. As well as some exclusive bonus content, Luke's interview with the McKinsey consultant whistleblower Garrison Lovely. Very interesting stuff for those who want to know how to fix the price of bread. <laughs> yeah, I want to say a thank you uh, to uh, Garrison for that uh, great discussion, which uh, you can listen to again at patreon.com slash Michael and us. Thanks as well to Ettinger Mentum. We had a very interesting conversation about the complicated dynamics of Israeli politics and the uh, formative role uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has played uh, in establishing, uh, you know, the current political consensus in Israel. As a personal plug, I do just want to say one last time, I'm going to be in Vancouver uh, on Wednesday of this week, November the 1st. 
I will be with Ed Broadbent and my colleagues Jonathan and Francis for the third uh, stop in our book tour for Seeking Social Democracy. Uh, we will have details on that in the show notes. If you are in Vancouver, we'll be at the Central Library. Do come on out, say hello. Uh, I also want to say a big thank you to everyone who turned out to our Toronto launch at the Toronto Reference Library uh, the weekend before last. It was a really lovely event, a very memorable day for all of us. Some of you uh, who are listeners came. It was very nice to see you all. Thank you for introducing yourselves. Yeah, it was a jam-packed room. Uh, really, really terrific. Uh, thanks as well to Mary Olivia Chow for her warm introduction. You know, I'm sure she's a listener. I think we are near sold out in Vancouver as well. There will be uh, at least one more stop. I will be in Windsor uh, at some point, Windsor, Ontario, that is, uh, in November. So if you're a listener in Detroit, maybe consider crossing the border for that one. I'll have further details uh, in the coming weeks. But, you know, one of the real treats of this uh, book tour for me has been uh, meeting so many Michael and Us listeners uh, in the flesh. For such a social medium, it is kind of strangely isolating. And, you know, for such a formative period of this show, you know, not only were we doing a podcast, we're doing a podcast over Zoom. We often weren't in the same room uh, with each other. Uh, and of course, not in the same room with any of you. You know, working on the book in a similar fashion, I suppose, uh, was a very, you know, working on a book is always a kind of isolating exercise. It's always something where you have to kind of cut yourself off from the world a little bit. You know, I wasn't really in touch with my colleagues at Jacobin when I was working on it. I was on leave. You know, Will and I would sort of, you know, meet over Zoom to record the podcast. And it was all, you know, all very kind of economical. You know, we weren't in the same room to, you know, watch all the annoying vloggers that we've been following for years or complain about people we don't like or all the other kind of life affirming things we do when we get together. But so, you know, coming on the heels of all of that, it has been a truly wonderful experience to be in rooms with people, not only to share the book, uh, but to share the podcast as well. So thanks to everyone who's come out so far. I hope to meet a few more of you in the coming weeks. Now watch this drive. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise he did the mash he did the monster mash the monster mash it was a graveyard smash he did the mash it caught on in a flash he did the mash he did the monster mash from my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom at the vampire's feast the ghouls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. It caught on in a flash. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman. Dracula and his son. The scene was rocking, all were digging the sound.